Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 40. In the last episode, I covered two places, the land of Ta and Mizpah. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm working through what's known about the Canaanite deity Chemosh, then turning the attention to the judge Jephthah's daughter. And with that, let's get started. Next up in Judges is the Canaanite deity Chemosh. More specific than the Canaanites, he is generally thought to be of Moabite origin, and he wasn't just found in the Old Testament, but also in the Mesha stele. This 9th century BC tablet was uncovered in Moab and attests to how Chemosh, described as the god of Moab, had been angry with his people, allowing them to be subjugated to the kingdom of Israel. But after some time, Chemosh returned and assisted the Moabite king Mesha to throw off the yoke of Israel and restore the lands of Moab. While the stone tablet certainly makes Chemosh seem like he's Moabite, Judges points towards him being the god of the Ammonites. In reality, polytheism is rather fluid, and he was likely both. More on all of that in a few minutes. As for Chemosh, let's start with his name, except the origin of it is unknown. It may be related to the Semitic god Shemosh, though he was also known in Ebla as Kamish, or the name might be a form of the Mesopotamian deity Nergal. Back in the Old Testament, and more specifically First Kings, the worship of this god, said to be the abomination of Moab, was introduced in Jerusalem by none other than the wisest man to ever live, King Solomon. The 11th century AD Jewish commentator Rashi quoted a tradition that Solomon's wives built the temples to Chemosh, along with other deities, and that Solomon is held responsible because he did not stop them. Though others think it was Solomon himself who had a temple built to Chemosh on the Mount of Olives. Some rationalize this as a political move by the wise king. Either way, it did have the effect of allowing Chemosh's worship in Jerusalem, along with the surrounding area, for the next 400 or so years. It wasn't until Josiah's reign in the 7th century BC that the temple was torn down. Other Jewish traditions maintain that Chemosh was the national god of the Moabites, as recounted in these traditions, the deity became angry with his people and permitted them to be the vassals of Israel. After a while, his anger subsided. This is very similar to a passage in 2 Kings I'll get to in a minute. At some point, Chemosh commanded the Moabite king Mesha to fight against Israel, leading to a victory, with independence shortly following. Note that this tradition is very similar to what's seen on the stele, and may have been sourced from it. There are other potential mentions in the outside record, along with multiple records of the re-establishment of Moabite independence after it was ruled by Israel. One such reference dates to the era in the days of Sennacherib, so the early 7th century BC, and mentions a king named Chemosh Nadab. Despite my efforts, I could find no translation of that name. In other records, Chemosh was a god associated with the Semitic mother goddess Ashtar, 
their names may be related. There is a contingent that thinks that Ashtar may be equivalent to Ashtarde, who they also believe was worshipped in the Temple of Kamosh. It may be that Kamosh was more of a catch-all deity, in a vein similar to Baal. On a more gruesome front, it's been posited that on several occasions, a human sacrifice was considered necessary to secure his favor. This is likely what a passage in 2 Kings refers to. There it reads, When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his firstborn son, his heir, and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall, and great wrath came upon Israel. So they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Nearly the same passage is found on the Moabite stone. In two places in the Old Testament, in Numbers and Jeremiah, the Moabites are called the children of Chemosh, or the people of Chemosh. On the stone, King Mesha's father is called Chemosh Malik, literally meaning Chemosh's king. The trap is to think of this too literally. Keep in mind that kings like to present themselves as the earthbound manifestations of deities. So, calling the supreme deity de jour as his dad was more of a way to secure his title and power. Another line on the stele reads that Chemosh is Malik. Malik was another regional deity, with this one literally stating they were one and the same. Think of that what you will. I generally think of it as the ambiguity that surrounds polytheism. But this does overlap with 1 Kings and Judges 11. Judges has Chemosh as the god of the Ammonites, while 1 Kings has Malik, and that triangulates with the stele. This triangulation is yet another refutation of the critics of the accuracy of the Old Testament. I'll end with Chemosh making an appearance in John Milton's 17th century epic poem, Paradise Lost. And that's it for the Canaanite deity. Next up is Jephthah's daughter, sometimes named as Sila or Iphis. If only to make the understanding of the story easier, I'll use the former name. In the judge's narrative, her father, the judge Jephthah, had just won a battle over the Ammonites. And before the battle, he made a vow that he would offer up as a burnt offering the first thing that came out of his house. Unfortunately for the both of them, but more for her, the first thing out of the house to greet him was his only child, Sila. She was excited to see her victorious dad, so excited it said she emerged dancing and playing a tambourine. Some translations use the word timbrel, essentially the ancient version of the same musical instrument. After learning of what her father promised, she seems resigned to her fate, but asked for two months to weep for her virginity, a weeping said to have occurred in the mountains. After the specified time passed, she returned, with her dear dad doing as he said he would, which makes this part of the Old Testament narrative among the most disturbing. In Genesis, Abraham, due to divine intervention, never went through with child sacrifice. But Jephthah, a judge, did. Having said that, 
there are commentators who read the text a bit differently, but the majority opinion among biblical scholars is that Jephthah did indeed kill his daughter. The minority opinion is that Jephthah's daughter spent the rest of her life in seclusion. This is based on considerations such as weeping for her virginity would make no sense if she were about to die. Critics of this more rationalized opinion argue that weeping for her virginity would have been understood when viewed with the biblical commandment to be fruitful and multiply, and with her father fulfilling his ill-advised promise, she wouldn't get that chance. This interpretation of her spending the rest of her life in seclusion is proffered by some Christian scholars from the 14th century, to the point that it continues to be advocated by some today. There is one opinion that interprets a single word differently, which, if you read pedantically enough, changes the outcome of the passage. Essentially, whoever came out to meet him would be the Lord's, meaning dedicating their life to God. If that person strayed from that dedication, then, and only then, would Jephthah offer them up as a sacrifice. I'll let you decide. Until about the medieval period, the story of the judge and daughter was more in the background, with the exception of the first century AD pseudo-Philo, which devoted an entire chapter to her. It was in this text that she was given the name Sila. The writer essentially put Sila on the same level as the patriarchs, in this case, particularly Isaac. A later writer, Peter Abelord, from 12th century France, praised Sila, portraying her as a model for monastic women who devote their lives to God. Also during this period, some Jewish communities refrained from drinking water from wells and rivers for a few hours at four significant times of the year. This developed into a custom called the tekufa. Also in the 12th century, Rabbi Judas the Pious recorded that the tekufah that fell during the month of Tishri was observed because of Jephthah's daughter. Tishri is the first month of the Jewish civil calendar and the seventh month of the ecclesiastical year. Jephthah's daughter is called Ada by the order of the Eastern Star and is one of its five heroines, in her case representing obedience to duty. The other heroines are Ruth and Esther from the Old Testament books bearing their names, Martha, the sister of Mary and Lazarus, and Electa, the elect lady from the book of 2 John. As for the Order of the Eastern Star, it's a Masonic group with both male and female membership, founded in the 19th century in the U.S. And that's it for Jephthah's daughter, but I'm not quite ready to move on. I'm going to spend a minute on the different interpretation of this instance of child sacrifice, all while attempting to keep it as far from disturbing as possible. But that won't be easy, simply due to the subject matter. Like I mentioned a minute ago, Jephthah's sacrifice is in stark contrast to how Abraham's story unfolded. The overriding explanation of what the judge did is that, at the time, the Israelites were exceptionally barbarous, at least when compared to later societies. For that time and place, especially when compared to neighboring groups, such behavior was decidedly more acceptable. 
It also serves as a historical example of how Mosaic law, which banned human sacrifice, was not always followed. Of course, Moses also commanded the people, in Numbers 30, to carefully consider vows, as they shouldn't be broken, and this story was an example of why. There are various commentators explaining how the sacrifice was not acceptable to God and how it should serve as a historical example of the Israelites adopting the practices of their neighbors. There are two somewhat noteworthy interpretations. The 5th century church leader, John Chrysostom, held that God allowed Jephthah to kill his daughter in order to prevent similar rash vows from being made in the future. This was further seen in the annual bewailing of the event that served as a constant reminder of the mistaken vow. The 4th century bishop of Milan, St. Ambrose, cited the story as an example of how it's sometimes contrary to fulfill a promise or to keep an oath. Besides the historical part, the remaining interpretations are more theological, which I'll avoid. The Talmud characterizes Jephthah as having poor judgment, making unfitting vows without proper consideration for consequences. The Midrash maintains that if Jephthah had read the laws of vows in the Torah, he would not have lost his daughter. The assumption there is that he was both literate and copies of the Torah were readily available. Both are highly unlikely. There's more than Jephthah in his vow, but I covered that in Chapter 8, Episode 15. And that's it for Jephthah's daughter, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the Tekufa, the Hebrew celebration that references Jephthah's daughter. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.